Remain standing with me, if you would, as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to be able to stand and sing in your presence from hearts that are filled with gratitude, devotion, thanksgiving, honor. God, we exalt you to that rightful place that is rightfully yours. For you are sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. You are worthy of our praise today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come into a place of worship. For we live in a free country where we're free to worship you without fear, intimidation, or persecution. Be able to gather together as God's people and to elevate, to exalt, and to glorify your holy name. Thank you for the joy and the privilege that is ours to be able to be together today and to make that happen, to express ourselves from the depths and the bottom of our hearts with incredible devotion and love that is, that is to you and you alone, God, and no one else. God, I pray that as we open your word that you would inspire and use me to be able to articulate what your word has for us today. Thank you for the opportunity to study this word and to to be ready and to be full and to be um, prepared to deliver it. But I pray that you would lead and guide my thoughts and my words. And I pray that every word that is spoken from this text today would not only magnify and glorify your son, but encourage and empower your church to be all that you intended it to be. Thank you for the joy that is ours to study your word together. And I pray that it not just be an exercise that is futile, but one that carries deep meaning, that produces incredible fruit, for as we listen, we understand that it would impact our practice for your glory and for your honor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We began this series a couple of weeks ago entitled Transformed, and so we're going to sort of spin off on that title, Transformed, but as we look at Matthew chapter 28, uh, chapter 20, verse 28, we learn that Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. Is that what he said? Is that what he said? He came to be served, not to serve. What did he say? He came to serve, not to be served. He came to serve, not to be served. We saw last week how there was a mother, Simon Peter's mother, who was transformed by the power of Christ. She had an issue, and it was causing her to be on her deathbed, more than likely. And there was a desperate need for the touch of Jesus to transcend her disease and to transform her life. Upon entering into the house of Simon Peter, Jesus quickly discovered the need, and they implored him and begged him to come. And he went in, and he laid his hand on her and raised her up from her condition and touched her and transcended her disease and transformed her her life, and we learn according to the scriptures that immediately upon that transformation, she served. 
There was something within her based upon that transformation that received from the power of Christ to want to give back, to want to serve, to want to attend to not only Jesus but to the other disciples. And I'm convinced that should be the norm of the Christian life. It shouldn't be an abnormal thing. Because when we've been transformed by the power of Christ, the end result should be It should be that we want to serve, we want to give back out of gratitude, out of some compelling compulsion deep within us to be able to give of ourselves now, not only to Christ, but to others who belong to Christ for his honor, for his glory, and for his edification. We want to give back, we want to serve, we want to yield ourselves completely and totally to the devotion and dedication of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we take a look at a scripture like we've read this morning. We think, okay, we're going to be looking at deacons today, which we are. And deacons are servants. But God has transformed every one of us who are fully devoted Christ followers, who've been transformed by the power of Christ to raise us from the dead and to breathe new life into us with this concept of service. We have been transformed to serve. Pardon the pun. But we're not here to sit, soak, and sour, but to serve. You get all those S's? We're here to serve. And God transformed your life through the power of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, so that he could utilize every capacity of your life in order to further the kingdom of Christ and to serve the body of Christ. We're here to give of ourselves wholeheartedly, completely, unreservedly to him, for the gospel community to be able to to go out and to perform the great commission that Christ gave us as a church. And so I want to take a look at this whole concept of being transformed to serve, and especially this morning to serve the gospel community. Because that's what Simon Peter's mother did. She served not only Christ, but she served the other disciples, those who were in the home. And we sometimes do very well as a church in talking about our responsibility to witness and to proclaim the gospel and to go out into the community and redeem the lost. But do we spend as much time, I think, with an important task of that of serving the gospel community? For we need each other in this family called the family of Christ, the body of Christ, in order to together come together, serve each other, strengthen each other, encourage each other, be emboldened by each other so that we can then go out into the world that God has called us to minister that is often hostile and difficult and filled with all kinds of what we might call in the book of Revelation all the woes of the Christian life. That's the rhythm that we have, isn't it? It's a rhythm in which we, we come together on the Lord's day and we go out. And we come together and we go out. And we come together and we go out. And when we come together, in that discipline of coming together, if we aren't a church, a body, a family that is serving each other, doing what is necessary in order to encourage, to admonish, to equip, to to, to embolden, how can, we, how can we, if we're not being that church, how can we then go out and fulfill the Great Commission? We, we need to come together and through that transforming work of the Spirit of Christ, come together in order to serve each other through the gospel community. And one of the ways that God has, 
has organized the church is through the office of the deacon. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard many, many people say, I don't like organized religion. You know what? That's like saying I don't like an organized God. For God is a God of order. I mean, imagine if God hadn't ordered gravity. There's an order to this world. And I know some of you thrive on chaos and confusion and and disorganization. I happen not to be one of those. (laughs) I hate disorganization. I, I like everything in its place and everyone doing as they're supposed to, and I don't like chaos. Uh, I don't necessarily have to be the one to organize it, but I don't like disorganization. And hopefully I will surround myself with people who also despise this organization and will organize the church as it's supposed to be, because I think the church of all institutions of the world, especially the one that God created, should be an organized thing. It should be administered well. And God, intending the church to be organized and administered well, gave to the church a thing called a deacon. And he gave the church this this order through the deacon body in which the deacon body is to serve the church. For that is, in essence, what the word deacon means. It simply means servant. And the reason we're going through this study this morning and sort sort of coming along, you know, kind of stepping outside of the, the, the original series is because we're about to elect some deacons. Uh, our deacons are, are saying to me that they're getting old. Brother Charlie, are you getting old? No, I didn't think so. Are you 90 yet, Brother Charlie? 86. He's on his way. Our birthday boy this week is 90, and he's a deacon. We've not elected deacons since I've been here. It's been a while since we've elected deacons. And there are many reasons why we've delayed in this whole concept. Joel, how old are you? 71. Well, you're not old yet, are you? No, sir, I didn't think so. But we would like to, to, to take this opportunity as a church to elect and to appoint to service to the office of deacon so that we can have some more deacons to serve in our church. And so what we've decided to do is to make this day a time in which we sort of look at the Scriptures and determine exactly what the qualifications are for deacons so that as we, as we scrutinize the men that are possibly going to be considered for deacon, we might use the quali- well, we might, not might, but we will use the qualifications of Scripture, but we want you as a church to know what those qualifications are so that you, as you examine those around you, you will know who then is best qualified to nominate so that we can elect them and commission them to serve as deacons. And so what we're going to be asking you to do in a minute is go out in the back and to take a slip and to nominate some deacons that meet these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Bring it back next week after you've prayed over it a week and then submit them in the back for consideration for the deacon body who then the deacon body will then also evaluate and scrutinize those men that you've recommended And if they do pass the test, then we will recommend them to you as a church and we will um, commission them to be deacons and to be in the office of deacons. And the reason why we're doing this today is because I think the office of deacon is, is not only an honorable office, but is one that is worthy of our attention as a church. It's not something that churches should take lightly. And it's sort of 
sort of compels me, I think, to do this today, and I wish we had more in attendance, but, but as we consider the men that God wants us to elect, I think we, we should do it with incredible dignity, and we should do it with incredible scrutiny, and we should not make everyone a deacon or who holds the capacity of the office of a deacon. And I want to look at this whole concept of the deacon body. And I want you to pray this week as you take one of those pamphlets on the way out to look at the qualifications that we have for our deacon body according to how we interpret scripture and then to nominate for election through the process of the deacon body for the church to consider being deacons in that office called the deacon. Now, the word in this text, deacon, is a noun. It's not a verb. You see, in the New Testament, there are two words for deacon. One is a noun and one is a verb. They both basically are the same. A deacon is a servant, but not all servants are deacons. Every deacon should be a servant, but not all servants are deacons. And this word that we have in the text, there are four times it's used deacon, but twice it is a title, it is an office in the church. And as a noun, you take a look at it, it not only is a noun meaning that it's an office, but it's also masculine. Meaning that women are not to serve in the office of deacon. There is no office in the New Testament for deaconess office, as far as I'm concerned. And all deacons must be male deacons, because God has given the leadership and the servant leadership in the church to the male gender. Like the family is to be led by the man, the church is to be led by the men in the church. Now that's not to say that women can't occupy some form of leadership role as we have Miss Wendy who leads our children and, and, and others who lead our preschool ministry and those kinds of things. But the primary role of leadership has been endowed to the men of the church as elders and pastors and deacons, not to the women. And there are some churches in this city who have deaconesses, and they serve as deacons in the deacon board. There's nothing more boring than a deacon board. Ours is a deacon body, (laughs) and so ours are all male, and it is a noun, it is an office. For example, Phoebe, it says in some of your translation, Phoebe was a deaconess, that word deaconess is not the office of a deacon because it's not a noun, it's a verb. She was a servant. She was not in the office of deacon. So we can sit here and debate that all day long, but we're not going to do that. We've already done that as a church, and it's signed, sealed, and delivered, and that's kind of how we view it. Long story short, I want you to pray and evaluate those whom you're considering. As God leads you, put them on the list and bring them back, and then our deacon body will then, they have a subcommittee within the deacon body, will then interview those, evaluate those men, and then bring them back later on for us to ordain as deacons, to occupy the office of a deacon. And some of you are saying, well, what is and what are the qualifications of a deacon? We're going to go there. But before we do, I don't want this to be simply about the deacon. Because not all deacons, let me say say that again, not all servants are deacons, but all deacons should be servants. So if you take a look at this text, While all deacons are servants, all of us are servants. And the qualities that are described here are the qualities of a servant first. 
for the people that are being considered for the deaconess, the deacon office, the deacon office are men that are already practicing this service. In other words, we're not going to look for men who will do this, but we're looking for men who are already in the process of living their lives and serving this way. Deacons, when they're elected, are already serving. So we don't elect them to serve. They're already serving, and based upon their service, we acknowledge that service, and upon acknowledging that service, then we elect them as deacons, you see. Somebody said, well, what do deacons do? They serve. Well, where do they serve? In many capacities. Well, what do they do? They serve. Well, how do they serve? In many capacities. <laughs> they teach life groups. They welcome people into the church. They open up the church on a regular basis. Uh, they do a myriad of things. Serve on committees, and they serve on as trustees. They serve in many areas. They're already serving, and because they're already serving, and because they're already performing the function and the qualities of a servant, then you elect them, you see. And so the reality is as we take a look at these qualifications, they're qualifications for all of us, not just for the deacons. Well, these are the qualifications for deacons, but they're qualifications really for all of us who are in service. So we're going to take a test today. How do you like that? A pop test where we're going to invite you to not only scrutinize those whom you would consider as deacons, but I want you to look in the mirror and see yourself as a servant and put your own service to the test. Do I meet the qualifications of a servant? Am I serving well? Not just so that you can become a deacon, but so that you can be an effective, effectual, efficient servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a benefit to the body and a blessing to the church. So let's quickly look and see what we have here. Notice I need to put my service to the test. Where do you get that? Verse 10. Notice what it says in verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Notice the analysis here. And let them also be tested first. The word tested basically means just that, to be scrutinized, to be examined. A man's life should be examined. It should be scrutinized to the minutest of detail to qualify them to become a deacon. In other words, don't overlook anything. Thoroughly examine their lives. First, not after, but prior to their becoming a deacon. First, put them through the test. What test? We're going to look at the test in just a minute. And after you put them to the test, then, notice the word, then, after you put them to the test, then let them who are being considered serve as servants or as deacons. That's a verb. Let them serve as servants. After you put them to the test first and they meet all the criteria, then let them become deacons. Let them serve. Notice the last part of the word, if. That's a huge, huge word, if. Because if they don't, they shouldn't be elected to the office of deacon. If they prove themselves blameless. That's a tough word, isn't it? I, I would dare to say that there's not a single deacon here, and I know all of them well, who would say that they are blameless. Any deacon here today would stand up and say, Pastor, I, I beg, beg to differ with you, I am blameless. Any, any of our deacons here, perfect. Other than me as the pastor, everyone in here is imperfect. 
That's a joke, okay? Somebody the other week was saying, why does the pastor keep picking on Mark? They were visiting the church and asked one of our church members, why does he keep picking on Brother Mark? I pick on people I like, okay? But there's nothing hostile between us, so, you know. Sometimes I say this, I, you know, everybody else is imperfect but me. That's, that's not accurate, is it? So if you're a guest today and you're watching on the Internet, I'm not saying or claiming to be perfect. Those who work with me and my wife who lives with me would tell you I am very, very close, 99.9.5%, but not quite there. Right, babe? She's being silent as usual. That's why she's a great pastor's wife. Anyway. So it's not saying that he is perfect, but that he is worthy. And not worthy in the fact that he is worthy, but that he is he is someone who has met the criteria. He is someone that has been found after analysis. I think the word is basically that I'm looking for is deserving or one that is not perfect, but one that is conducive for the office of deacon. Okay? So we're going to put that to the test. So as you consider nominating someone this week for the office of deacon, I want you to consider these qualities. But you're not off the hook because I want you to, to evaluate and analyze your own service and say, am I this kind of servant? And if not, why not? And what do I need to do in order to step up to the plate and to make this a reality in my life? Now, number one, I need to put to the test the consistency of my faith. The consistency of my faith. For you see, it's, 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 it's another thing to believe. It's another thing to confess your belief. But it's another thing to practice your belief. He's calling us as deacons or to consider those who are deacons who not only profess faith in Christ and who not only claim doctrinal integrity, but those who actually practice their faith on a regular, habitual, daily basis. They are already living out the reality of their faith in their day-to-day walk and their work for the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, that's the office of deacons, should likewise, like he has just written before to the elders of the church, likewise, must be dignified. That means you need to be serious in character. You have a serious character, meaning that you're serious about spiritual matters. It means that you are, you are, you understand the gravity of the position of deacon and the service that it renders to the church. A serious person in character, not someone who takes their assignment as a servant haphazardly or flippantly or without a, a lot of serious thought and intentional action. But they're serious in character. Secondly, they are not to be double-tongued. In other words, they are to be a straight talker. In other words, they're not to, to say one thing to someone else and then come over here and say something else to someone else. You know anybody that's like that? If they're with this group, they'll agree with him. And if they're over here, they'll agree with him. Now, why is that not healthy, you think, for the chairman of deacons? Brother David, are you in here? I thought he was here. In the prayer room. It's a good place for the chairman of deacons to be. I mean, the chairman of deacons is the hardest position to be in the church, in my opinion, other than the pastor, because if they don't agree with the pastor, where do they go? Where do they go? To the chairman. And our chairmen probably have gotten many calls 
late at night. You're not going to believe this. Blah, 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 blah. And so he'll listen to them and he'll agree with them. And then somebody else calls an hour later and they say something completely and he agrees with them. What's that? Double-tongued. It's not a straight talker. A straight talker is someone who calls it like they see it and sticks to it and doesn't change their color of their opinion or the decision based upon the environment that they happen to be in in order to avoid conflict. They're not double-tongued. They're straightforward. In other words, they don't have one opinion over here and then take a different opinion over here. They're men who are straight talkers. Thirdly, they are self-controlled. Notice he said not addicted to much wine. And the word much is there. And sad for us as Baptists who don't believe in, in, in uh, alcohol consumption. It does say much wine. And so what we see here is to be self-controlled, I believe. And the whole concept of this whole idea of not giving to much wine has the indication or painting a picture of someone who lingers too long at a table and drinks too much wine, and therefore they're not under control. And if you're under control of alcohol, you're not under the control of the Spirit. And a, a servant must be, I believe, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Or if anything else controls you other than the Spirit, then you're not going to be an effective servant. And may I add, I believe that the best qualification for a deacon is one that abstains altogether because of the testimony of your faith. I have yet to see someone who has any sort of alcohol beverage in their hand lead anyone else to Christ. Well, let me tell you, my life, I found Jesus and I found joy, brother, and I got something you ain't got. Really, then why are you and I in the same place doing the same thing, drinking the same substance? Name me somebody that's had a a beer in their hand that's led somebody to Jesus with a beer in their hand. Never heard of it in 30-plus years of ministry. How'd you like to see me coming out with a six-pack under my arm? What do you think would happen? Huh? Think that we'd have a Baptist business meeting? Probably. Why? Well, I'm... It says, don't get, be given to much wine. Well, I'm drinking beer. I'm not doing wine, so scripturally I'm okay, right? You know, we have an ep- epidemic today in some of the young churches that we have alcoholic pastors in the pulpits today. Seriously. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem that's becoming widespread alcoholism on pastoral staffs because they indulge in alcohol. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen the benefit of any alcoholic drink ever at any time for any reason. Period. And I think the best spiritual leaders in the church are non-alcoholic leaders. And in our church, to be a deacon, you have to abstain from alcohol. Number four, you need to be a steward. Notice not greedy for dishonest gain. There's nothing wrong with gain, but notice a steward is someone that understands the role of the office, and as they understand the role of the office, they are someone that is trustworthy. It doesn't mean that you abstain from all gain, but you don't use your office as an opportunity for gain. Believe it or not, I know several pastors who will walk up and say, you got a preacher discount. I've never used that line. 
That's a bad thing to use. It degrades your witness. Now, I may barter with someone, but I'm sure not going to tell them I'm a preacher. When I bartered on my truck out there at the, at the Ford dealership, he pulled the you're a pastor thing, which took away my, my, you know, my club because I was going to go a little deeper. And he said, yeah, you're the pastor of man. You aren't anyone. Oops. That was, that was, that was lowballing, man. That, that was not fair because I was going to bring you down a couple of more thousand <laughs> if I could. And then I told him, I said, it's a good thing we're bartering personally because it was for the church. I would have brought you down a lot more. But he's a Muslim. And I'm trying to establish a positive witness. He's generous, meaning. He's honest in his lifestyle, integrity in his business. Notice also it says that they must hold to the mystery of the faith, meaning they, they must be sound doctrinally. You, you should not put someone in the position or the office of a deacon who's not doctrinally sound because there are going to be times and moments, especially in the early church, when doctrine is going to have to be defended, where doctrine is going to have to be taught, and where lives are going to have to be brought under the the scrutiny of the scriptures, and there's going to be a standard of lifestyle that's going to have to be enforced, and I believe it's the deacon body that's going to have to do that. So they must not be young in biblical knowledge, but very educated and very biblically literate. And number six, they must have been sincere in righteousness with a clear conscience. Sincere in righteousness, a clear conscience, meaning they don't have any hidden agendas. They don't have any subversive motives in their office of a deacon. Patty and I this morning were talking about Aaron and Samantha. And uh, Aaron has been given up in Montreal. Some of you may not know this. My youngest son is a church planner in Montreal. And we're going to go see him in spring break. And they have our latest grandson, Owen Taylor Boswell. Named after two very famous theologians. One's a Puritan and one's a theologian. He's his mother's son, what can I say? And we were talking about, this is their first Sunday in their new place. Somebody has given it to them. I mean, somebody in the community that's not even a Christian is giving them a place in the community center to have church. That's, a, that's incredible. And I said, do you think they're going to take Owen with them today? Because, like, we think it's cold here. I mean, it's cold there, okay? You don't know the meaning of cold. You've been to Montreal. And so... Patty probably said not, and we got to talking about how we did things with our children. Now, some of you can relate to this. How many of you had more than one child? You had more than one child, okay? With your first, when they had a pacifier, and it dropped to the floor, what did you do? We boiled it. We de-germed it. You didn't pick it up and put it back in their mouth. You, you cleaned it, man, and you made sure they didn't have any germs on that pacifier. Number two child comes along, what do you do with number two? You might pick it up and look at it and do this and put it back in their mouth, right? By the third child, which is Aaron, which is our best child of all three, there is like a four-second four rule. If it dropped on the floor and it's there longer than four seconds, you might clean it up, maybe not, but you pick it up as quickly as possible and stick it up. Why? Because you're going immunize, to immunize them as quickly as possible, right? Ah, it's just a germ. They'll be all right. Your standards change. I can't imagine four, Mark. And especially when they're twins. 
there's probably like a 20-minute rule for a pacifier. I don't know. Thank God that yours are out of pacifiers. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. While we as parents sometimes change the standard based upon how many children we have, we should never lower the standard for those who qualify to be deacons in the church. And the church over the years has not found men who meet qualifications, so they have lowered the standard and lessened the standard, so much so to the point where the standard is almost unrecognizable. And God here is saying that we must choose men. We must be servants who are consistent in our faith, who not only profess faith in Christ and proclaim into a lost world, but we practice what we proclaim. We practice what we preach. We are doing our best. We're not perfect, but we're striving for perfection. We're living it out in a day-to-day reality, in, in our business world, in our community world, and in the lives that we live for Jesus. There must be a consistency as a servant in how we live out our lives, because if there's not that kind of consistency in our faith, what good is our service if all they see in us is hypocrisy? Number two, not only as we put our test to the consistency of our faith, but the commitment to my family. The deacon must have a commitment to family that is second to none. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, not sober-minded, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Notice his partner. You see, a, a, a leader deacon servant is, is also evaluated by his spouse, by his partner. Their wives, the wives of those you're considering as deacons and those who are in the office of deacon, likewise, like the deacons, must be dignified. They must be reverent. They must be showing dignity. They must have a conviction that is serious about life. They are careful how they live. They are not to be slanderers. They're to be dedicated to the truth. They, they are not slandering. Did you know that that word there for slander has the idea conveyed to that of Satan or the devil because the devil is a slanderer. And when we slander, we are being a, a weapon or a tool of the enemy. And it is, it is a, a deacon's wife is someone who watches what she says. Notice she is also sober-minded, meaning that she is disciplined. She is self-controlled. She is temperate. She is not, not given to extreme moods or extreme actions or extreme things. And notice she's faithful in all things. She's devoted in both character and that she can be trusted. She's totally and completely faithful in what things? In all things, not just a few. Notice then the deacon in his promises in the next verse. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. This is the promise of the deacon. There's this fidelity to his wife. And there is some subject of discussion here, for some churches have reinterpreted this as the husband and one wife at a time. And while it can say that, I don't know why anybody would want to have more than one wife at a time. We're not going there. For obvious reasons. But he believes and he practices the sanctity of marriage. Divorce is never an option in his he is never unfaithful to his wife 
There's a relationship of fidelity, of trust, in that he keeps the promise that he made when he walked down the aisle and stood before family and friends and committed his life and his love for the rest of his life, and they are to be partners forever. And here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, you cannot consider a man to be a deacon if he is divorced. Number three, notice his parenting. Not only to take his, his partner into consideration and how he treats his wife and his relationship to her, but notice in his parenting, because he is to manage their children. They are to manage their children well. He is to parent. He is to father his children. He is, the word managing means to rule. It means to lead. And as I've mentioned, the, the husband is to be the leader not only of his wife, but the spiritual leader of his children. And it's not up to the wives to be the spiritual leaders of the children, guys. It's the father's role and responsibility. And as a servant, you must not only serve your wife in order to serve the church, you must serve your children if you hope to serve the church. Some of us were like me. We were told that children were to be seen and not heard. And we were treated as such. Because that's how that generation did it. That's not leadership. And we are to give ourselves to the parenting responsibility that we have. And then lastly, notice, and their own households well. That word well means to maintain the highest standard, the standard of God. It means to lead with integrity uncompromisingly to the truth and hold to the righteousness of Christ. We are to lead our own households well. We are to be faithful and to be faithful in our responsibility toward our family. With a couple once, which we were talking about the role and the responsibility of the husband and the father. And I'm pretty hard on men. And he looked at me and he said, that's not fair. Seriously, he said, that's not fair. I said, really? He said, yeah, it's not fair. He said, I've always wondered why God punished Adam for Eve's sin. Uh-oh. This guy obviously has been reading some scripture, but he's been listening to the wrong teacher. Or he's come up with a wrong interpretation. And I informed him, if you read Genesis 3 close enough, you will realize that Adam was in the garden with Eve. He was there. Adam was there. And when the conversation was being had between, between Satan and Eve, Adam remained silent. He was silent. And he let the wife take the lead in confronting Satan. And when Satan questioned the commands of God, he sat silent. And when she was tempted, he was silent. When she took the forbidden fruit, she was silent. When she ate it, he was silent. When she gave it to him, he was silent. And then when God then decided it was time to inflict the consequences for the sin, guess who came after first? Adam. Why? It was his responsibility as the, the head of the, of the marriage, of the family. And to come between his wife and the serpent and Satan and assume his role and responsibility as leader. And what God is saying here in this text is when we consider deacons, we have to consider how they lead in their marriages, 
with their children in their fidelity and in their faithfulness and their responsibility to elect men to serve the church. Because if you can't serve your wife well and if you haven't served your children well, you're not going to serve the church well. Lastly, notice the contribution that these servant leaders give to the church. Verse 13, the contribution they give to the fellowship. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also grant confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the reason for the contribution they have served well. That is the same word well as we saw earlier in the text. And the reason they're making a contribution is because they have not only met the qualifications, but they have risen to the standard of service. They have served well. Someone has evaluated and scrutinized, and they have served well. That's the reason why they're making a contribution. They have served well. For when a deacon serves well, he contributes to the body of Christ. When a servant serves well, we contribute to the body of Christ. For we gain a good standing for themselves. They gain a good standing for themselves. Notice the recognition of the contribution. And the word gain means they obtain for themselves. It's something that they personally attain. Now, they're not working to obtain this, but it's something that is endowed or that is given or entrusted to them because of their service. They're not serving in order to be applauded, to be recognized, but they're serving well. And because of their service and because it is well, then they are Elevated, And the idea of good standing is that of a stairwell, and they are then elevated. They are positioned sort of up here in a good standing with the fellowship. Why? Because they have served well. There's nothing wrong with recognizing someone for serving well. As long as their motives are, are right and the, the way they have served is right. But notice the result of their contribution and also great confidence in the faith. The result here is a personal Result. There's something they personally benefit from good service, and what they benefit from is a great confidence in the faith. They are, they, because of their service and because of the recognition, they're emboldened, they're empowered, they, are, they, are, they become more courageous in their service. The whole concept is that it's a trait that is willing to undertake and to face adversity when it involves risk and even when it involves difficulty or danger. And the idea is that they are emboldened or they're empowered not only in their service to the church, but in their proclamation of the gospel. And we're going to look at that in just a minute because all servants have responsibility to proclaim the gospel. But notice that last little phrase that is in Christ Jesus. That is sometimes overlooked because here we see that the reward of their contribution is they are strengthening the church. This is a reference here to the body of believers. For when a deacon serves well, he empowers the church. He contributes to the family of God and emboldens the fellowship to take a greater stand and have a greater witness amongst a hostile and difficult world. I don't have a lot of time, but I want to go to Acts chapter 6 real quick. Turn there. Acts 6. Not on the screen, so hang there with me real quick. I'm going to make this point, and we're going to close. Acts 6. Now, there, there's a huge debate of whether or not this was the deacon order in which they elected deacons, and I'm not going to argue with all that, but 
historically and traditionally, we have looked at this text as a place and a method in order for us to consider deacons. And so I'm just going to refer to this, but I want to point out one guy here specifically. Acts 6. There was, a, there was a problem in the early church, and because of this problem, there were obviously some widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And so the twelve summoned the church, and they decided that they would elect seven men. And so they elected seven men. They devoted themselves to prayer and, uh, and the ministry of the word. And they wanted to elect these deacons in order to serve. And they, they elected Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Arminius, Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. Notice verse 6. And they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. But notice what happens after they elected the seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happened after they elected these seven men to serve? The Spirit of God moved. <laughs> the church was empowered. It was it was emboldened by the selection of these men and their service to the church. If you look down at Acts chapter 8, Acts 6, 8, chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, one of the guys he elected, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. That's a deacon. A deacon who is full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. A deacon named Stephen. And as a result of that, he was attacked. They brought false charges against him and took him before the council in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 7, we don't have time to read it, but there's a beautiful sermon that he preached at the council of Jerusalem. It was amazing. And in Acts chapter 7, we learn that they decide that they're, I'm sorry, in Acts 7 is when he preached the sermon. In Acts 7 verse 54, I want you to notice what happens to Stephen because he preached the sermon. Acts 754. Now, when they had heard these things that he had preached, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at least at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. A martyr. Acts 8. Stay with me. Acts 8, verse 1. Who's there? Saul. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. On that day, after stoning Stephen, what happens? A great persecution came upon the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, notice, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So because of the stoning of Stephen, they scatter. Watch this, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Skip down now to verse 4. And those who were scattered, remember, those who were scattered went about doing what? 
preaching the word. Preaching the word. And many were added to the kingdom. Why? Because the stoning of Stephen and his witness and his testimony, um, a deacon named Stephen, empowered, emboldened others to proclaim Christ. And as the church scattered, they didn't scatter to be silent. They scattered to proclaim the gospel. And that's how God got the gospel out into the utter regions. Through Stephen. A deacon. One man who served well was used by God to embolden and empower the testimony of the church. One servant. Never underestimate the power of one servant serving well, how God can use that. I say the office of a deacon is a very valuable office in the office of the church and must never be taken lightly. So in light of that, three questions I'm going to close with. Number one. We've been transformed to serve the gospel community. Next slide. As we consider deacons for service, make sure they measure up. Make sure they pass the test. Don't take this lightly, church. For the power of to embolden the church comes often through those who serve the church in the office of the deacon body. Pray this week like you've never prayed before. Ask God to lead you to men of faith. Men that we've described this morning in this text who need to be considered to serve and the capacity and the office of the deacon body. Number two, when I put my service to the test, how do I measure up? Because you see, all these qualities and all these qualifications and all these characteristics are not just for the deacon because, you see, these, these men are supposed to already be doing these things. These women are supposed to already be doing these things. We have a responsibility not only to the faith, to the family, and to the fellowship. We all have that responsibility. It's not just to the pastor or the pastors or to the deacon body, but it's all of us have a responsibility each unto the other. To be authentic in our faith, to be people who are leading our families well, and who are contributing to the fellowship so that we can empower and embolden the church to go out. Because we need the rhythm. And I, I don't know about you, but I need to come together on a regular basis. That's why we do that. And those who aren't coming together and then going out and coming together and going out, that's why it says, don't do what others do. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a habit of some. For, for that reason, some are not doing well spiritually because they're not in that rhythm. There's a rhythm in the spiritual life. And as we come together and when the body is as it should be and we're emboldening and empowering and equipping and encouraging and strengthening and supporting and undergirding each other and then we go out and then we come back and we need to be that kind of church and that church can only be that kind of church when you and I as members of this body are like that fulfilling our roles and our responsibility in the assignment that God has given us as servants so put your own service to the test 
And how do you measure up? And lastly, as I consider service to the gospel community, have I been transformed by Christ? You can't do until you become. You can't serve unless you know. You can do a lot of things, but you'll do them in your own power. Unless you're doing it in the power of Christ, that only comes through in the birth of the Spirit. You cannot serve a body 